0: Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors Inc.
1: Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing
0: associations across the UK.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. Well, what a messy week that was. I wish there was a bunch of good news to share, but after drama in Catalonia and terror in France, Canada and Las Vegas, maybe the best we can hope for is a calm week next week. In this episode, we discuss a politico-journalism experiment called the Global Policy Lab with our chief Europe correspondent, Matthew Kanichny. Our star guest this week is Johan Denelin. He's the CEO of the Swedish telecom giant, Telia. He's one of the most forward-thinking CEOs out there. And we've talked to him about everything from mobile payments in Africa to the sustainable development goals at the United Nations and what on earth that's got to do with the telecoms company. And the Brussels Brains Trust mulls the Catalan crisis and helps a Brit in Brussels who's being blamed for Brexit in our Dear Politico section. So first up, I'm talking to Matthew Kanichnig, who is the Chief Europe Correspondent for Politico. And he has been leading, let's call it an innovation. Politico has been running something called Global Policy Lab. And Matthew is going to tell us a little bit about what that is and how it works. So welcome to the podcast, Matt.
3: Hey, Ryan. Thanks for having me.
2: Great. So Global Policy Lab, it sounds fancy, but what does it actually involve? Like, how is this a different form of storytelling or how did you gather information on the your topic which was engineering growth right that the lab itself
3: is is not quite as daunting as the name might seem what we're really trying to do here is to uh, get readers involved in the reporting a little bit more than they might normally be. And to do that, we set up a newsletter, which I think uh, many, many of the listeners hopefully have subscribed to. And we sent that out every week and also asked them to really, as we went through this five-week process, to respond to uh, what they were reading but also to provide new ideas and to help us with the reporting essentially to give us tips to tell us what we were doing right, what we were doing wrong, what really the interesting areas are that we should be looking at. So it really was collaborative in that sense that it wasn't just the reporters out there alone uh, making calls and reporting as they normally do, but we were really trying to involve the audience in the reporting process a little bit more. And the other idea here was to not just sort of send this out into the ether and, and forget about it, but to actually come up with you know, real policy prescriptions at the end of this process. So in this first installment, we looked at the question of digitalization, in Germany, in German manufacturing, which, as we know, is uh, crucial not just to the German economy, but to the broader European economy. And digitalization is this big buzzword out there. Everybody's talking about it, and it means something different to uh, different people in different countries. So we really tried to kind of distill this term down into terms of German manufacturing and what it means for Germany's, you know, really kind of old world manufacturing base in the future. So that that really is sort of the, the basic summary of what we tried to do here over the past five weeks.
2: And one of the things that really jumped out at me, because I read some of your articles that were coming out of it, is there are some surprising supporters for elements of digitalization, where I hadn't really appreciated that German unions, for example, um, you know, they can be quite supportive of robots in manufacturing. And I guess that is partly because that would help keep the manufacturing in Germany rather than uh, being uh, shipped out to a cheaper competitor. Um, is that sort of uh, the level of surprise you were getting as well? Or, and what are some of the other ideas that people were pushing? Uh,
3: yes, definitely. I mean, I, I think that is a point that you know might have caught uh, some people by surprise. Certainly, I was surprised to hear from German labor bosses that they actually welcome more robotics, more automation. And, and the reason is partly because Germany is an aging society. Uh, it's running low on on skilled workers, and automation is one way that the country and, and the big companies can basically ease a lot of the manual workload on older workers, for example. So, if you have more robots doing some of the manual tasks, especially that the literally the heavy lifting that people are doing today, um, it's possible for them to keep workers on the assembly lines or wherever they are for longer than they uh, normally would. And those workers might be now doing other things. They'll be operating the equipment instead of doing the manual tasks themselves. But, you know, at the end of the day, this issue of automation, where it's leading and why it's necessary in the German discussion seems to really revolve around this problem of the skilled worker shortage. And that was one of the the other surprising things that I found is that people see digitalization as a way to really cope with this problem. And one of the conclusions that we drew from this was that you can't just rely on robots and, you know, we'll see where this whole field of artificial intelligence takes us in the the coming years. But there really is going to be no way around dealing with the problem without... Uh, more immigration uh, which is something that we
2: we pointed out in our in our Now list of now things. we're getting into the juicy stuff because I, one thing that really struck me in the final weeks of the German election campaign was just how much immigration dominated that main leaders debate between Schulz and Merkel but how you know a lot of people in policy making circles were a bit frustrated that other issues like digitalization didn't really make it into those big debates and, and it strikes me that um, either you go uh, for the, the more technical and maybe ultimately more disruptive route of replacing people with robots or you're with this political hot potato permanently of just getting more and more migrants to come in.
3: Yeah, that, that's right. And the answer is, you're going to need both. You're going to need more robots, and you're going to need migration. Because it's a bit of a myth that you know the more automation you have, the fewer workers you're going to need. I mean, that just basically in sort of the modern industrial era has has never been the case. The more sort of technology has developed, you know, the more jobs there have been for for various reasons that we don't have to get into now. But at the end of the day, they're going to need in Germany um, a lot more talent. Coming in, and it becomes then a very a very big political issue because to maintain the current workforce that Germany has right now, they would need to bring in about four hundred thousand uh, immigrants every year um, you know through two thousand and sixty, which is as far as the current projections go, and right now they're the average over the past uh, a few decades has been more in the in the two hundred thousand range, and that's sort of where they're projected to stay. So this is a, a big political question, and unfortunately though, it's sort of looked at in isolation, it's looked at in terms of immigration, sort of good, bad for Germany. Do we want to have all of these these foreign cultures here or not? and it's not really looked at in terms of what this could bring to Germany in, 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 in the long term in terms of ensuring its, its, its economic prosperity.
2: And in the feedback that you were getting from readers and other members of, of your audiences, how much were people really tackling this idea that so much policy is all overlapping and joined up these days? Because, you know, I like we were just touching on the fact that you can't deal with these things in isolation, but obviously you want to get concrete ideas out of people, not sort of grand manifestos of how they change the entire world. Did people find a way to, to navigate that balance?
3: Well, this is one of the neat things that I think we did with this that really made a difference and helped us avoid kind of having very narrow discussions, which was to invite a group of experts to kind of come along with us on this lab from different disciplines. So we had, for example, labor market experts, we had union representatives, but we also had economists, we had people from industry, and so forth. And so they they brought their knowledge of digitalization and what it means and what is necessary from very different disciplines. And I think It allowed us to have this kind of more macro view of the problem and and to not look at it too narrowly and also to push this conversation forward by saying, you know, this isn't just about asylum seekers or, uh, you know, the AFD. There's a lot more at play here, and people really need to take a second look at this digitalization question and not just look at it on the industrial side, you know, in their own terms and, uh, you know, on the academic side from their own point of view. You really need to have a more holistic approach
2: to all of this. Great stuff. Well... Matt Kanichnig, thank you for explaining the Global Policy Lab to us. Thanks, Ryan. So here at Politico, we'll be continuing that Global Policy Lab experiment next month with Pierre Briençon, one of our French reporters, who will be looking at how President Macron can revive the French economy. And after that, we'll take a look at post-Brexit Britain. How are they going to re-engineer their service-focused economic model? Can they re-industrialise? And what is it going to take to thrive and not merely survive after Brexit? Now we're chatting with Johan Denelind, who is the CEO of Telia, and he's joined us here in Politico's offices in Brussels, and is actually recently back from the United Nations General Assembly Week in New York. So Johan, first of all, welcome to the show.
4: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Tell us a little bit about what's been going on in New York. It's not the obvious place for a telecoms CEO to to spend the week. So, wh- why are you so passionately involved in the sustainable development goals of the United Nations and and how does it really relate back to your business at Telia?
4: Yeah, no, thank, thanks for that introductory question. I think I think it's spot on. Um, it's not a natural place for A telecom operator to be in the past. I said now we have to be there. Uh, The reason is a couple of. Let me explore a bit. We came out two years ago as an industry uh, and said let's make a difference, uh, also in the broader space. And we managed from a GSMA board perspective, which I'm on,
2: and that's the mobile industry. The mobile industry
4: association to come together as one industry, one voice. The first one out to support the SDGs one year after its inception. So last year it was the first time that we came out with one voice saying that our industry is so important for the realization of these goals. So last year I was there. It was a bit vague. People didn't really understand. We said we are committing to this. We will report on it. So this year I was back to report on it, to report progress across the 17 SDGs, showing the impact our industry is making to each of the 17 SDGs some more than others obviously
2: so what are some of the important ones that you know where you're really the critical difference
4: yeah so take a couple of examples uh, smart cities infrastructures and investment partnerships an ecosystem for partnerships those are three that i'm very passionate about and of course you have others that are equally important uh, So, decent jobs and you have climate obviously in there as well where we as a as first of all a big investor in infrastructure in the society enable Economic growth, simply. I mean, I think we had a report out saying that out of the global GDP, our industry is north of 4%, a part of that, directly and indirectly. Uh, it creates obviously millions of jobs. Uh, and this is our way to show the importance of our industry. And, and why is this important? Because we have been seen as a silo industry in the past. We have been regulated as a silo industry in the past. We have been treated as a separate industry, and like a silo-based industry, which I've always had a different view on because we are so integral part of the societies and the partnerships that we can enable other industries. And this comes together in the SDGs, where we are a platform for change where if we do partnerships with other industries, with, with governments, with academia, we can realize the full potential of our industry, yes, but also in fulfilling the SDGs. So that, that was great to be back. And the big difference this year is that people understand this. People get the fact that you know, as a part of the previous goals, uh, development goals, this one has for real brought it in out of the elite and into the masses. And we are such a critical part of bringing it to the masses. So it's not just a small group of people working on this theoretical framework. It's actually happening out there.
2: And it has a lot of unusual effects, doesn't it? I mean, if I think of Africa for a second, um, something that is well known in policy circles, but maybe not out there in the general public, mm-hmm. is just how advanced mobile systems are in Africa. for so everything for payments, for Completely. example, for making sure agriculture markets work. And then another one that really surprised me, but I I don't know an awful lot about it, so maybe I'm hoping you can tell me a bit more about it. But for example, when you kind of get out some of the the middlemen or the intermediary layers, in uh, governance where there's been corruption or inefficiency in the society. If you can connect people via mobile means, you can really do things like make sure they're getting their welfare payment or that they aren't being scammed at the market um, for for different prices that they would otherwise,
4: you know, potentially be really vulnerable at when they, when they bring their goods to a market. Spot on, spot on. I was in Africa for three years uh, running the Sub-Saharan Vodafone portfolio and in in Tanzania, where we had our our M-Pesa launch on, launch on the back of Kenya success, you could see those effects. Everything from the money transfer, where it precisely as you say, you take you take corruption out of the picture for some of the physical money flow to agriculture to the women's health. Uh, there's endless examples of what our industry can can do for the better of, you know, for the world. So. We, it was kind of perfect timing as the SDGs came into play, uh, as the world got behind it, our industry got behind it, and now we're pushing this. And then, of course, every company needs to do its part. So I've said, for Telia, let me also bring SDGs into to my company. And we call it, we, we label this program or movement, hopefully, Unite. Uh, And I have a hope and ambition and I encourage all our employees who are about 21,000 in the Nordic Baltics to one day per year, come out with our partners uh, to do something that connects to the SDGs. Uh, With our partners to help out uh, in society. uh, And that's in a volunteering sense? Volunteering sense, uh, so you you get to take a day off, uh, well actually it should be seen as work, because what we do there is part of our jobs. Mm. And that's also the second part of it. This is not something on the side. This is a this is part of our core business. This is good business for us and our shareholders. And I don't think in the future you can separate this anymore. And and we came out as the second company in the world with a uh, statement of materiality, mm-hmm. where we show how important the fulfillment of the SDGs is for our business for our company so you for put some hard numbers on it in the annual hard report numbers, and the shareholders
2: judge you yeah. Yeah.
4: the board is behind it they believe that this is value creative for, for our business and our shareholders and that's a very very important statement and we have committed to our stakeholders to report on this yeah. and, and, that's, and were there but, any
2: surprises in that process like I think about sort of corporate social responsibility that's a 20 year old concept uh charitable giving you know it's not this is not donald trump cutting a check for a kid's charity this is something much more integrated in
4: your business model now is definitely i mean and, and i think we will not hopefully speak about charity as such and csr as such we will speak about it's a core part of the business that we do our strategy and we are making impact in the society where we operate and therefore we're helping fulfilling the uh, sdgs and other problems related to this That's the good force of our business. So from good force to great force, I would call it, going from CSR to something more important, integrated business.
2: Now, if we switch a little bit to talk a bit more about, I don't want to say your core business, clearly that was your core business as well, but the the actual telecoms elements of your business. So you are quite prominent in discussions around something that gets labelled a gigabit society. And we also hear a lot about uh, the development of new technologies like 5G. Can you tell us a bit where all of those efforts are at at the moment and how close are you to actually rolling out some of those new technologies and and, and what is it actually going to mean if I'm a Telia customer, you know, how's my life going to change because this stuff is now going to land on my smartphone and and in the networks?
4: Love the fact that you have picked up on that Gigabit Society, which we're pushing hard in, in our region. A bit of background first. I mean a lot of the countries up in the Nordic Baltics are quite far down or up there on the list of penetration, speeds, digitalization, usage, etc. So we're meeting a lot of these challenges and opportunities early as a region. So we said let's bring 5G technology early into our markets to understand the potential. We're not talking about big commercial launches in the near term because that's, I mean, technical reasons, standardization reasons, spe- spectrum-per-country per reasons, and so forth. But you can bring 5G experiences into the markets already now. There is a digital summit, I, th- I think when we're airing this, it's probably already happened, uh, in Tallinn. And we will make sure that we showcase some of our the benefits of the Gigabit Society already there for the uh, European Commission and customer with some really cool customer uh, cases i think those are the examples that we will be talking about how we bring not just speed because speed is one thing that i think we're getting spoiled with already but latency and stability is something that we are going to be appreciating a lot with 5g coming into our markets and therefore opening up a completely new range of services that we actually can't think of all of them today because as we roll these out for our partners and the ecosystem around us innovation will just flourish and that—that that is what happened with 3G and 4G without 3G and 4G you wouldn't have Facebook uh, you wouldn't have uh, Google as it is today right so our investments is the base for innovation and economic growth. The same will happen with 5G and the gigabit society. Actually, we, we say gigabit society with terabit territories. So we're actually aspiring for even higher speeds eventually, to ensure that we can take the full customer experience to to the best, and that will be required. Because today we still we have been wrong every time in the past about speeds, uh, how they will increase and how much data will go through our networks. We've been wrong all the time.
2: But it all goes in one direction. It all right? goes it's in one direction. Now, and it's not stopping yet. Speaking of this uh, summit in Tallinn, uh, I think Emmanuel Macron is pretty much on your wavelength, if uh, his speech at the Sorbonne University is anything to go by. But you know, imagine you are stuck in a lift with Angela Merkel or Emmanuel Macron. <laughs> you know, what <laughs> oh, are you be- gonna what are you gonna say in those thirty seconds to shake them up and make them realize that they need to invest in this sort of stuff? Yeah.
4: Do you understand the potential of the digitalization? Do you understand that Europe can fall behind? Do you have an understanding that Europe can lead the way to be the digital force in the world? We're talking billions and trillions of euro's potential. If you understand that, which I believe you do, then please give the conditions there. Set the framework right. Don't get stuck in politics and regional politics and country politics. Just do it. Going back to the code that has been drafted, which were actually quite okay. I wouldn't say great, but it's quite okay. But that code, through the political process and the European institutions, is being watered down, diluted to the point where we now as an industry feel very frustrated. We heard today Commissioner Gabrielle saying that, you know, she's confident she will push it through. Let's hope so so, because we need
2: it. And this is the new telecom The digital single
4: market and you know we, we need to get behind and i think those two people are so important to make this happen so i would the, the elevator pitch became longer and i hope it was a longer ride with them in the in the elevator
2: you can you're, i think you're a bit bigger than mrs moper you could like block her at the door if you need to um so one of one thing emmanuel macron suggested was an eu agency for disruptive innovation um that could sounds like it could be like the most exciting thing the eu ever does Or a bit of a nightmare? It sounds like a contradiction in terms to me.
4: I don't think it's needed. I think what's needed is to let loose the the power of uh, the forces that are out there. And you can see some examples of that. And let's take Stockholm as an example. We're second to only Silicon Valley as a region, city, country in the world when it comes to startups and unicorns that comes on the back of an ecosystem in, in Sweden and Stockholm that is fantastic. It's good investments, good innovations, good uh, capital flow, uh, risk money, and a good political framework, to be honest. Yeah. that's what You've you got mean. the
2: right attitude. You
4: got the, and you have it. skills and attitude and so forth. So I don't think creating separate innovation boxes is, is, is not the, the overarching answer from my perspective. With all respect, Mr. Macron.
2: Indeed. Now, thinking back to some of those EU regulations again, it's been a tumultuous development in the last sort of 10 years. You have um, the the kind of the digital only businesses, the ones that don't really have a lot of the physical infrastructure. You know, they have been able to innovate at a rapid pace. There's lots of big questions around, um, for example, are they even paying the right amount of tax? Um, What's your sense of that playing field like do you feel that you have a fair shot against those new companies or do you feel like you're stuck with a harder set of regulations just because you came of age as a company before they even existed mm-hmm. um so yeah so do you think you're in a fair situation at the moment and and if you think no like what's required do, do we need to get rid of regulations do we need to even out the regulations what, what's going to get you somewhere where you're happy
4: if I leave out the tax question, which I think is a slightly different topic here, and I go to the regulational level playing field, uh, there is there is not a level playing field. If you look at the digital economy, digital industry, if you look at the telco industry, you you may argue that there is a fairly level playing field, but also there I see gaps. Let me give you an example. If you call with our GSM, 3G, 4G services today, a normal voice call you're under regulation that teleco operators are regulated under if you don't if you go to your data services and do a whatsapp call or a facetime or whatever you're in a difference you you can um, can avoid some of those uh, different regulations that exist that's not level so that's an area where we are advocating strongly you know same service same rules same regulation and don't regulate technology regulate services and behaviors and don't regulate in advance, regulate problems. If you if you get a, a, a market abuse or a problem, then you have all the tools to go after a remedy. But why regulate upfront, anticipating problems? That also we believe and advocate strongly hampers innovation. So I think the answer is quite simple, uh, albeit difficult: is to see our industry more horizontal. It opens up other industries as well, and not just the telco part, but the internet, the media, the, uh, the the broader ecosystem, and have a view on how consumers are consuming our services. Then you look at the, if there is a problem there, and then you regulate if there is a the problem. So that's the position of Telia, that's the position of many of the, my peers, without naming them. Uh, But I feel we speak a lot with one voice in some of these matters, which is good. But then we need execution again, back to the elevator.
2: Yeah, I think that certainly the message is being received more now in Brussels. You know, one of the things that I think is true over the last uh, few years is that tech, digital telecoms, there's there's a lot of different voices, but maybe they haven't been one voice. And that's hampered the ability to to get a result out of the, the EU system.
4: And we need to be constructive, sorry. We, we can be seen sometimes as we're complaining. And we have high margins still, and we complain. It doesn't work. We need to show the trend that it's a negative trend. We're losing competitiveness, and there is great opportunities on the table if we do things right. Then you get more more cohesive, constructive discussion, because that's what it's all about. I don't believe that people don't understand our arguments, but it's about getting arguments into actions, and that then you need to, you know, get on the same bandwagon here. Mm-hmm. And
2: we often talk about competition with Silicon Valley, but another argument that's been put to me recently is that China maybe is the real competitive threat that European companies need to worry about, and they've been quite protectionist in their approach to digital issues. So we think of the Great Firewall of China as a kind of big lid on free expression, but also it's been quite useful in helping Chinese companies... uh, borrow, steal, copy from other um, technology developers, create their own uh, very successful huge companies, um, create their own systems with, with the luxury of that firewall protecting them from competition. Um, how do you see that kind of threat or relationship or competition with China and can we learn anything from China or is that really just a completely different system?
4: Let me put it this way. I look at China, I look at Japan, I look at the US, I look at South Korea, and they have one thing in common, I think. They're executing better on the bigger things for the future right now. Uh, qu- quicker to remove barriers for investments uh, without re- making any remarks on the political systems here. Uh, I think they're getting things done quicker than we do right now in Europe and we risk entering into a phase where we don't get things done in Europe. That's why I'm so passionate about pushing the digital agenda across Europe. We can't change the fact that we're 120 over telco operators. We are 27 8 countries, uh, depending on how you count, and of course there will be national operators. That's not the point. We will never reach the same scale as the four U.S. operators or the four Chinese operators. But we can get the same investment prerequisites, which will give us better scale than we have today, better returns than we have today. That's what we're pushing. And I think then back to China example. I think what I take out of China when I'm there, the innovation and the the. Uh, the amount of smart people uh, and the services that are also starting to export, we see that. And, of course, that's going to spread more and more. I mean, Alibaba is, is a great example of uh, starting to spread across the world from, from something that grows domestic and then goes international. You will see a lot more than that, of course, uh, over the years to come. And hopefully we can be, stay competitive, and I think we can. I mean, we have smart people, we have money, we have good infrastructure, we have smart politicians. So why shouldn't we? that's my kind of rhetorical question back so why shouldn't we there are no reason actually the only reason is that we're not able to get to execution of our of the policies that we actually want to do we're pretty aligned on what we the vision is pretty good the digi- digital sing- single market is pretty good the uh, the commissioner commissioner gabriel's speech today was pretty good but it's about executing that
2: there you go Listeners, leaders, you've all got some homework from Johan Denelin, who is the CEO of Telia, uh, one of the leading telecoms companies here in Europe. Thanks for joining us, Johan.
4: Thanks very much. It was very fun to be here.
2: That was Johan Denelin, CEO of Telia. Now it's time to switch from a global focus back to a local focus and bring in our Brussels Trust. Hi, Alva Finn.
1: Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena.
2: Hi, Lena Ebers.
1: Good morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva.
2: So, for our EU WTF moment this week, well, it was a bit more of an EU WTF week rather than a moment, let's say. I think we've got to turn to Catalonia in Spain. Uh, there's issues on both sides of the hugely divisive set of events that have been going on there. Uh, what sticks out in my mind is that in reacting to Sunday's vote... Uh, Both Madrid and a lot of official EU sources uh, didn't really even mention the police violence against uh, more than 800 people uh, who suffered injuries during the course of that vote. And then, of course, um, we all know there were a lot of problems with the vote and that however we got there, it was an unconstitutional process. And so now Catalonia uh, insists, we think, on pushing ahead with declaring independence. So that is a bit difficult, given the circumstances of the vote as well um, so I'll turn it over to you too. What are your reactions to what we were witnessing on Sunday?
5: I kept thinking who why aren't these police officers briefed like this is just handing the Catalonians more ammunition for more argument uh, for wanting to see It probably got more people out on the streets um, willing to vote because of that kind of behavior. Uh, I just thought it was so sad. And I, I think we talked about it a few weeks on the podcast. Um, there are so many other ways to deal with this.
2: Lena couldn't Spain have just said, you know what, you voted, but that wasn't constitutional. So we're not going to, to take it into account.
1: Indeed, but they lost again another opportunity. And uh, violence triggers more violence. And last Sunday, it was a very sad, it's a black day in the history of Europe. Uh, Europe is built on the uh, rule of law, uh, respecting human rights, uh, fundamental rights of the human beings. It's, it was really sad to see the older women being uh, dragged from the street, uh, young people hit on their necks uh, with the sticks. Now, the, the conflict has taken a totally different dimension. Uh, Catalonia won, the emotions, the sympathy not only of the European community, the international community. It's, it's really, really sad. Uh, it's a city, forgive me for that, very dear to my heart. And it is really sad to see people being beaten, peaceful people for no reason. There are other ways to communication and to negotiation. This is Europe. And I was shocked that this was taking place in Europe.
2: Let's talk about some of those other ways forward. A really obvious one would be to have a mediator involved in this process. Uh, We can't change the fact that violence happened, uh, but if you have a mediator involved and you have some kind of very structured dialogue, then that at least uh, really limits the chance of future violence. Now, Madrid has ruled that out, but I kind of, I mean, I would hold my ground there. I don't understand what way out of this crisis exists unless you bring the two parties together with some neutral party uh, to force them to talk. Uh, So leaving aside whether you can force Madrid to agree to it, um, are there reasonable examples of mediation working in the past? Um, What other means could you use to kind of diffuse the tension?
5: I think if you look at the Northern Irish case, there is like lots of interlocutors, um, particularly from the US, because they have sway over Ireland, and there's a lot of Irish people living in in the US. And the Clintons, for example, did a lot in Northern Ireland. Uh, did they get them all around the table? I don't really think so. I don't think anybody from from the EU really will be seen as uh, as a kind of honest broker from the Catalan side, at least. Um, yeah, so that that would be my view, but I think you could get a prime minister from or a former prime minister from from one of the European countries to go. Um, we were talking about this yesterday, Ryan, and we kind of like jokingly said Cameron, but maybe he actually would be quite good. Uh, he's doesn't have very much on his plate at the moment, so maybe. And you know, and he's, he's
2: had successful and unsuccessful referendums. So yes, he knows, very uh, recent. All the aspects of that. Uh, journey
5: let's yeah say. but who knows what and I think a lot of those things are built on personal relationships as well uh, I'm not sure who would get on with 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 both of them yeah so that that would that's an, another important factor like who, who who are their friends and then who's neutral and who could be an honest broker
2: and is there I mean I really get the sense that there's some strong element of pride on both sides where they're I, I think they're each looking past you know some basic compromise steps, and and essentially each side is saying it's our way or the highway. So there's not a lot of ingredients for compromise. But
1: there. Ryan, as well, the question is, does Europe want another uh, a crisis? I mean, we're just living the Brexit. We're just being slapped in Europe with with a decision of of the British people. Why not the leaders come together to consensus to contain a unified country and push together for Madrid to sit on a table and negotiate with the Catalans? Whether now the identity or the personality or the background of the mediator, this is well, something There must be, be a reason why
2: 26 of them didn't, didn't say something about it. Two of them did, Slovenia, Slovenia and Belgium. And, Belgium. and 20, <laughs> 26 effectively took the side of Madrid, or at least said... sort it out behind closed doors. They weren't willing to say anything.
1: But had it been in a different region, in another part of the world, uh, there will be like a marathon of statements and marathon of tweets and uh, uh, bashing these countries. So it is in the interest of Europe, in the interest of uh, having this continent uh, uh, as strong as it claims to be, uh, to sit and talk with Madrid government, talk with the Catalans, and then put them together. And who would be m- mediator? Who is the credible personality? This is another question. But first, Madrid has to calm down and sit on a table. Violation will only trigger more vi- violation, and Europe doesn't need it at this moment at all.
2: Well, let's focus on an EU thumbs up. We've got hey. to have some positivity in our <laughs> lives after a weekend of violence, and then th- those terror attacks, the massacre in Las Vegas. Um, the EU thumbs up that leapt out at me, or kind of didn't quite leap, it kind of like nudged its way towards Mm. my my (laughs) mental space, was in Germany, where you had two elements of unification. So after division, let there be unity. And it was German reunification day earlier this week. And then of course, we saw also the first same-sex marriages in Germany. So two examples of people coming together in peace and love rather than in discord and violence.
1: We need more of it nowadays in Europe, No.
5: Oh, I thought I thought like I watched um, some of the scenes of German reunification, and they were kind of like heartwarming. Y- yeah, like families being reunited after however many years. Lena showed us a video of of uh, two um, older gay men getting married in Germany, and obviously they had fought for many years to do that. And yeah, I think these are good thumbs up uh, after what is frankly, a, yeah, drastic a, week, a drastic and sad. Sunday and week. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, let's hope to have more and more of uh, these lovely stories and uh, get the Catalans and the uh, Madrid sitting together and reunite again.
2: Well, not to pull the rug from under us, but now it's time for Dear Politico, which usually isn't a time of hope and happiness, but I don't want to preempt the discussion this week. So we have a, a British man has written to us um, with a problem this week, and he says... Dear Politico, I am British and regularly visit Brussels for work, and I've started to notice a hostility to Brits. Sometimes it is subtle, and sometimes it is outright rudeness. Not quite people calling me, quote, filthy Brit, but close enough. Where can I draw the line with those people? Part of it is people expressing a real frustration that the UK people and government voted for Brexit and how it is handled, And part of it, if you replace Brit with any other racial or gender or cultural label, would be beyond the pale. Help.
5: That's terrible. I think, especially if you voted to remain, I I think a lot of people forget that so many people voted to remain and it was really uh, close in the end. Um, So, yeah, I think that that's absolutely not fair. I would call people out on it. Uh, Don't let people blame you for Brexit. Um, and in the end, also Brexit. Unless
2: you're David Cameron, if this is you writing David Cameron, well, <laughs> yeah, maybe we I'm cannot like, be quite so generous.
5: Imagine if it's David Cameron. Uh, yeah, well then it is your fault. No, um, <laughs> but yeah, maybe explain to people in a rational way. You know, this is not this. It, that is also not the way to get people to want to stay in Europe either. You know, but I'm I'm not too
1: shocked. Uh, I mean, this has been always uh, around. It just now he's he's more. Uh, vigilant to it. Uh, We always hear like the Eastern European, uh, the uh, North African, the um, other parts of the world. I mean, uh, I lived it, so I just felt a new it. So other uh,
2: coming
1: into existence. I, 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 somehow, I, I was never called uh, by my first name, but I was called for six years by my nationality, the XYZ. So these things uh, happen, except that uh, now um, the gentleman is, is
5: feeling it. I think this is a kind of different scenario, and I kind of remember when, uh, well, my American friends tell me that in Europe, when George W. Bush was president, they used to get such abuse on the street. And I've, I've been there and I've experienced it. And they're like, oh, you know, Bush is like, doing this war. I need stupid. And you're stupid as a result of that. And none of them would have been people who voted for George George Bush. So I think this is very political yeah. Um so I think it's a little bit different and it probably will go away as well once we get through the, the pain and the of the divorce. Um, but I, I do commiserate with this kind of, or I, I understand um, the feeling that you should not be blamed for, uh, for any of the political decisions made by uh, a, the populace. Just have a bit of uh, thick skin and
1: keep moving forward.
2: There we go. Stiff up a lip, keep calm and carry on. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) wonderful advice from our panel now that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential thanks for listening as always podcasting is a team effort so I want to give my thanks to Rosie Belson and Wei Dong Lin and to our Brussels Brains Trust and we'll see you the same time next week for another episode of EU Confidential